Okay, this morning, let's take our Bibles and turn to the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Now, looking at this, Mark chapter 16, um, there's a real big problem here in this chapter. And the big problem is is that uh, the early manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts, end at verse number 8. Later manuscripts have included verse 9 through verse 20, and then some manuscripts would include just, there should be an italicized section down there in the bottom of of, uh, the passage. Some of them include that after verse number 8. So um, I'm going to probably mention some things next time about that, but I do want to make you aware of that because in your Bible, if you have an ESV, it may not even include verse number 9 through the end of the chapter. Uh, and other translations may have brackets to let you know that there's something going on there, all right? But it doesn't change anything in the message uh, about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so maybe next time I'm in this text and finish up, I will mention some of the reasons why there would be an issue. All right, so this morning we're going to be looking at verse number 1 through 8, and this would be the, called the short ending of Mark, verses 1 through 8, and of course it highlights the resurrection. That's the main point here, but there's many things going on in these verses that I want to look at this morning and try to bring out and identify. But before I do that, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, this morning... As we come again to your word, I pray, Lord, that you would make us ready to receive it because we know, Lord, the conclusion of your word is not just for information. It's to believe it and to live it because it's the living word that comes from the living Christ. And so, Lord, you are seated right now at the right hand of the Father and you're preparing to come back again. But you, Lord, defeated death. You defeated Satan. You accomplished what no man could have ever accomplished before you became a man because you were the perfect man. You were the sinless man. You were the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And Lord, for that we are forever grateful. And thank you, Lord, that you left us four Gospels as a witness and a testimony to your life and, of course, your suffering, your death, and your resurrection. And, Lord, thank you that we have these witnesses um, to study, to embolden our faith, and to make us people who truly, in any time that we live, live out a life believing these things are true and that everything you said, you have said, did come to pass, and everything you said now for the future will come to pass, and I thank you, Lord, for that. 
Uh, so I pray you'd bless us with these truths this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8, chapter 16 of Mark. Now, let me just bring you where we, where we came from and where we're going. It's, it was not long, of course, after 3 o'clock in the afternoon when Jesus died. The Gospel of Mark tells us in Mark chapter 15, verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The next day was, of course, the Sabbath. The Sabbath began at 6 p.m. on Friday or sunset, whatever came first, second. According to the Jewish law, a criminal's body might not remain on its cross over the Sabbath day, and therefore the body of Jesus had to be quickly taken down and rapidly disposed of. Very often, bodies of crucified criminals were simply left once taken off the cross and left there for the vultures and the crows and the wild dogs. But the followers of Jesus had an influential friend who was able to help them to pay what they thought was their last tribute to their dead master. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. I mentioned him last week. He was a rich man. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was a devout man, and he was a secret disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He went to Pilate and requested the body of Jesus that he might be given a decent burial. Pilate, of course, was surprised that Jesus had died so soon because crucifixion was supposed to be a long, slow, painful death, but he willingly granted the request to Joseph, and of course, Nicodemus was aiding him. The tombs of wealthy families in those days were not graves in the ground, but were caves. And of course, with shelves on which the bodies were laid. Joseph had such a tomb, and it was never used. It was brand new. It was just hewn out of rock, and it was located. Located near the garden, in a garden near Calvary's Hill. The Apostle John records that Nicodemus came with a gift of spices to embalm the body of Jesus as if it were the body of a king. So the body of Jesus was wrapped in grave clothes, which were like long linen bandages wound around and around the body and in between each round, spices would be put in. And then, of course, it was laid on one of the shelves in the rock tomb. Such tombs were not closed with a door, but with a heavy disc-like stone, which ran in a groove. And, of course, it was rolled, once the body was in there, to close the tomb entrance. It was very, usually for a rich man's tomb, it was very large and heavy. Unlikely that any one person could move it. Now, of course, in verse number 47 of chapter 15, it says Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, were looking on to see where he was laid. So they were paying attention where he was going to be put in a tomb. And then meanwhile, the Jewish authorities had not been idle even after they had seen Jesus die on the cross, 
they were still uneasy about him. They went to Pilate and asked that a special precaution be made, lest the disciples of Jesus should steal his body and claim that he had risen from the dead. Of course, Pilate agreed and a guard should be, that a guard should be posted and the stone should be sealed to make things safe as they could be made at that particular moment. The time was to come when the bewildered guards had to report that the tomb was empty. Of course, that really would have meant for them the death penalty for them, but they were just giving the facts. And when they were then bribed by the Jewish authorities to say that Jesus' disciples had stolen his body, all the Sabbath day, that's our Saturday, the body of Jesus laid in the tomb, and the tomb had no visitors on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath day was a day of rest, and to make a journey from the city to the tomb would have been breaking the Sabbath law, so nobody visited the tomb on Saturday. So then, there came the first day of the week, our Sunday. And so, it was early Sunday morning, before or shortly after dawn, that we read our text this morning. Now, what happens next in the Gospel of Mark is one of the most disputed events in all human history. According to the Gospel writers, they are giving historical statements of factual truth. Now, when we think of truth, at least the way we should think of truth, truth is not negotiable. Historical statements of fact are not open to question. You can't change the facts. When we read, for example, for, uh, that George Washington and his men spent the winter of 19, or excuse me, 1777 enduring wretched conditions at Valley Forge, we are obligated to believe it. Although none of us observed their long, deadly winter, what we know about this event is it really supported by written testimony of those who were there and also collaborated by those who studied the Revolutionary War and determined what the facts are. So we usually trust the record of historians. We usually do that. In a historical sense, the resurrection stands on ground that is just as solid. Reliable witnesses wrote about meeting and talking with Jesus after his death. Skeptical enemies noticed his disappearance from the tomb. Extra-biblical historical reports were given of his resurrection. Eyewitnesses of Jesus' post-death appearances after he died, of course, defending those truths and willing to die for them and of many other things. So in order for an honest historian to be convinced that something actually happened, he needs to see at least two specific criteria. Two criteria must be met. The first one is this. The event in question must be supported by the testimony of believable and trustworthy witnesses, reliable witnesses. And then secondly, 
the circumstantial evidence must be authenticated. It must be authentic. When both of these demands are clearly supported by the evidence at hand, the inquirer is really compelled by logic to believe that the event actually took place. If we apply these criteria to the resurrection, we must conclude that it is factually true and did actually occur. Even with all the evidence, we know some don't believe. It was Winston Churchill who made this observation about men and truth. Churchill said, men occasionally stumble over truth, but some, but most of them, pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing had happened. It's the same when it comes to the resurrection. People can hear about it, they can hear messages on it, they can read about it, they can talk about it, they can lecture on it, and it may just be that they are just dealing with information and it never affects them. Nothing happens. That should never be true for a believer. Actually, a believer needs to submit to them, give themselves to the truth, and believe it, even if that means believing unto death. So let's examine the written testimony that we have and conclude for ourselves. So we're going to see several things going on here. The first is the experience of faithful women and what they actually witnessed. Let's look at verse number one and two. This was the woman's, the women's desire and their work. It says in verse number one, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very, very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now, the woman's desire here was they were just thinking on an earthly level. They came seeking a corpse in order to finish preparing the body. Jesus, of course, had been dead since Friday. In that climate, dead bodies start to compose very quickly. Therefore, the dead are buried that same day, or they're, very, they're buried very early the next day. So the women brought very costly aromatic spices to carefully prepare the body which, of course, also speaks volumes of their love and devotion for their master, their Lord. Now, by the way, why does Mark mention these women three times within, really, eight lines? Well, because he is establish, establishing these women as reliable witnesses to a historical account. Right? These are believable witnesses. They're not coming to prove anything. They're coming to anoint the body of Jesus. See, the repeated names of the women here are really a source of citation. These women must have been alive 
at the time of Marx's writing. It's like Marx saying, if you want to check out the truth of my story, go talk to these three women and see what you get from them. Also, we do know this, that why, why women and why no men show up? Where are the disciples? They're not there. Just the women are there. Now, one reason could, could be, of course, there's several reasons. One of them is they're cowards. <laughs> the second one would be that women, not men, uh, comprise those who come to the tomb to refute the claim that his disciples stole the body, right? They never showed up at the tomb. They couldn't have stole the body. By the time they got there, the body was gone, right? The soldiers knew that. So they, that, of course, could not be collaborated. So the women, of course, came there doing that. Now, the women also had, were worried about something. And if you notice in verse number three, it says, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? See, they were worried about the problem of gaining entry to the tomb and could not think how they might move this massive stone which guarded its entrance. So Jesus laid in the tomb, and the great stone, which some New Testament manuscripts say that 20 men could hardly have moved it, was rolled up in its groove, from its groove, to close the tomb. So the women thought, who will do this service for us that we can finish anointing the body of Jesus? Now you should remember that Mary of Bethany, while Jesus was still alive, gave her devotion of what was going on to the Lord Jesus Christ, and actually her love to Jesus had an extravagance connected to it. If you remember in chapter 14, it says these women, with an, this woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. And the reason why she did that, because she was worshiping her Lord, showing her love for her Lord. But it says in Mark 14 and verse number 8, she had done what she could. She had anointed my body beforehand for the burial. So in other words, Jesus' body was anointed prior to him even dying. Uh, that was all in Scripture. So we need to really offer thanks to the Lord that the women never had to use their costly spices in this instance. So you see, everything is pointing to something quite miraculous. It's pointing to an empty tomb. But the women also, we can see thirdly, they were shocked. In verse number four, notice, looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. All right, so those words put in there are, are there for a purpose, to give us the sense that this circular disc, this stone was so large that most likely even a group of people could not even move it. There was a way to do it, but you had to have strong people that did it. So when the women looked up, and they saw the extremely large stone rolled violently from the cliffside because rich man's tombs were larger than other tombs, and they had openings of full height. 
and had larger stones made proportionate to the size of the openings. In other words, the opening of this tomb was probably the height of a, a regular person. It wasn't a small opening. Some say in Matthew's account, which says, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. So the observation is this. The stone was not rolled aside into its groove in the regular way. No, it was hurled out of its groove by some tremendous power, thrown flat on the ground in front of the tomb, making a seat for the angel. Again, seeing this event being pointing to the empty tomb, pointing to a miraculous happening. And then a second thing that we see in our narrative is the unexpected declaration of the heavenly envoy to the women. That's the angels who came and spoke with them. In verse 5 and 6, the entryway to the tomb was now, of course, open to the women. So the women went right in to see if the body was still there. They did not see Jesus' body but instead encountered a very unusual young man. And if you notice in verse 5, the heavenly envoy's appearance, it says, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. See, angels appear as male and as usually young. His garments reflected the purity and the holiness of heaven. The women really do not see a decaying body, but an angel that represents life and light. And at the same time, the women were, it says, amazed or dumbfounded is a good way to say it. They were dumbfounded about what's going on. They're coming to anoint a dead body, and they don't find a body, but they find this angel who's got this brilliant As Matthew says, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Startled them. And then the angel rebukes the women in verse number 6, and he said to them, don't be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. In other words, I know who you're looking for. So he rebukes them. By saying, don't be amazed. In other words, stop being dumbfounded. No reason to fear. No reason for amazement. Why? Jesus is not here. That's why. Jesus is not here. So the heavenly envoy also gives a correction in verse number 6. He's not. It says, he is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. So he is inviting the women to examine the authentic circumstantial evidence for yourself. Come in the tomb and look and see. See, the resurrection of Jesus' body was at the same time its glorification. Now, don't misunderstand. The angel did not remove the stone that blocked the tomb entrance in order to let Jesus out. 
the stone was removed instead to let the witnesses in. Now, when the angel opened the tomb, Jesus had already risen. Jesus left the tomb silently before the stone was rolled away. His dead body was filled with new life, and at the same instance, his body passed out from its funeral wrappings. That means Jesus did not have to unwrap himself. No, Jesus' resurrected body passed right through the funeral wrappings. Then he stood up, and through the walls of solid stone that were sealed and guarded by the Roman soldiers, silently, invisibly, wondrously, gloriously, the living, resurrected body of Jesus passed through the rock. And yet Jesus was invisible to the eyes of the soldiers. Then at this very point, when the tomb was now empty, the angel came and opened the tomb and violently removed the great stone so that the women could go inside the tomb to see if Jesus was indeed there. And if not there, then what could have become of him? So in spite of Jesus' repeated pronouncements throughout his earthly ministry, I will die, but I will be raised the third day. I will die, I will be raised the third day. I will die, I will be raised the third day all throughout his ministry. No one, and I repeat, no one anticipated a resurrection. See, the resurrection was actually a shocking intrusion into what they were anticipating. We know historically that the Greeks did not believe in resurrection. In the Greek worldview, the afterlife was a liberation of the soul from the body. From them, resurrection, of course, for them, resurrection would never be part of an afterlife or after death. As for the Jews, some of them believed in a future general resurrection when the entire world would be renewed, but they had no concept of an individual rising from the dead. The people of Jesus' day were not predisposed to believing in the resurrection any more than we are. And the reason why is we, could, we just don't experience it. You know, we don't have many examples of it. In fact, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first one who genuinely was raised from the dead. Now, in light of that, there's a twofold instruction that comes from this heavenly visitor, from this angel. And this is what he says to the women who are there. He says, the first thing he says is, go tell the disciples about the resurrection of the Lord. In verse number seven, it says, but go tell, number one, in, he's saying there, listen, don't you be surprised or amazed, but go tell the disciples what you see. Go tell them about the evidence. See, the angel was saying something that really cannot be missed by the reader. 
none of the male disciples showed up at the tomb and almost all of Jesus' faithless, fickle disciples departed and were hiding out, cringing in locked rooms, terrified that the same thing that happened to Jesus might happen to them. And that's rightfully so. We would have done the same thing. Yet the words given on behalf of the Lord from the angel to the disciples are kind and gracious words. There's no, they're not words of rebuke. They're, they're kind words. Go tell the disciples what you have seen. And then notice in verse number seven, he says specifically, go tell Peter about the resurrection. Notice, but go tell his disciples, and Peter is, is singled out. Now, there's several reasons for that. First, Peter had to face his failure. He was the biggest denier of the Lord Jesus Christ, denied him three times. He was the biggest failure of, any, of all the disciples. Secondly, he had to know the forgiveness of Jesus. And thirdly, Peter had to know that he could be restored back to intimate and useful service to his Lord and his people. He had to know that. It would only be natural for the women who rushed with the news to the other disciples. Luke tells the story. Mary hurried to tell the story of the empty tomb to Peter and his disciples, whom Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was, loved, who was John. But at the same time, she did not grasp the significance of the empty tomb, but was kind of brokenhearted because she thought that someone had taken away the body of Jesus or stolen it away. Peter and the beloved disciple set out for the garden. The, the, the beloved disciple John saw the empty tomb and the grave clothes lying in it, but he did not go in. And, of course, Peter rushed right in. It says this in John chapter 20. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which was, had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, he saw, and he believed. So what was it about the grave clothes that was so striking? Well, there's two possibilities. I gave you one already, actually. The first one is that it may be that the grave clothes and the face cloth were so neatly, tidily laid out and folded that it was quite clear that there had been no hurried theft of the body, but that it had been carefully taken off and laid away. Secondly, it is possible that the Greek could mean that the linen grave clothes and face cloth were lying separately exactly as if the body of Jesus had evaporated out of them and left them lying empty. So Peter and the beloved disciple returned to Jerusalem with the certainty that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. So the circumstantial evidence is, is really piling up. It's very hard to refute. And so the angel also says something else to the women. He says, not only go tell the disciples and Peter, 
But he tells the women to go and tell them something else. He said, tell them to proceed to Galilee for a grand meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what it says in verse number 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, Galilee is not around the corner. Galilee is 100 miles north of Jerusalem. So you have to get from one place to another. It takes some time to do that. All right, we do know that Jesus was around for some 50-some days uh, after he rose from the grave. And he was meeting and joining himself and appearing to all kinds of groups of people. But in this passage of Scripture, Jesus really is keeping his promise of a special meeting with his disciples after he rises from the dead. Now, take your Bibles and turn back to chapter 14 and verse number 28. Chapter 14, verse 28, and it says this. Of course, verse 27 says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. In verse 28, but after I have been risen, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And then, of course, it talks about Peter uh, falling away. So, in other words, Jesus had promised before the cross that he would meet them again after he rose from the grave. Well, he's keeping that promise. He's keeping that promise because after God accomplishes redemption and is raised from the dead, then he will bring his scattered sheep together again. He will meet up with his disciples in Galilee. He will resume leadership over them. Now, why Galilee? Jesus will appear to them as the great shepherd of the sheep that leads his flock. Well, remember, Galilee is where he chose his disciples. Galilee is where he commissioned his disciples. Galilee is where he gives them the great commission. That's what he's going to do when he meets with them. He's going to give them the great commission. The great commission is going to be going to all the world and preach the gospel, right? Of course, from Matthew, you're going to go, you're going to baptize, and you're going to teach. Again, uh, the reader can't miss this. Look at what it says in verse number 7 of Mark chapter 16. He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Now, what we see here is we're getting a glimpse of the unconditional love of God. The unconditional love of God towards his children, specifically towards his disciples. Jesus is saying via the angel, I will see you again. I'm going ahead of you, and I will meet you there. I'll be waiting for you there. In other words, I want you back again because I love you. I want you back again. Yes, all the things you've done, you ran away, you denied me. You weren't up sh showing up in places you should be. You should have shown up, but I love you, and I understand all those things. Now, you have may, you, uh, 
you have all heard of and sang the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We think when we hear it that that is a good children's hymn and that that is the shallow end of the pool, but in reality is actually the deep end of the pool. It is the end that is over our heads. We are conditioned that God loves us when we're good. We really don't believe that God loves us when we fall into sin. Oh, don't misunderstand. Unbroken, habitual patterns of sin may prove a person does not even have the seed of God in their heart, therefore unsaved. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when God's people sin and they think they don't, God doesn't love them anymore. See, God's love is not changing or fickle like our stuff, love is. It's consistent and unchanging with his character. See, so saying this to his disciples was a great encouragement. As they took that 100-mile journey back up to Galilee, they're thinking, wow, he really wants to meet with us. He really wants a relationship with us again. That's why, you know, we have passages of Scripture like in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us while we were good and likable, he died for us. That's what it says. While we were sinners, he died for us. While we were ungodly, while we were enemies, while we were denying him and cursing him. You know, in my testimony, when I give my testimony, I say in my testimony, you know what? When God found me, I was not looking for him. I was doing all right. I was having a good time. I was experiencing the world. I wasn't looking for God, but what I found out is he was looking for me. And when I heard the gospel and I realized what it was and what I never actually did, I never asked Christ to save me. I never repented of my sins. I never believed specifically in the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when I did and everything changed, I immediately was impressed by the love that God had toward me who I knew I was a sinner. That, that was very clear. See, so when God breaks in on our world with mighty and amazing power, usually it's mixed with astonishment and it's mixed with fear, it's mixed with amazement, and we really don't know what to do with it. And the same is true in Scripture. Look at verse number 8. It says, they were out They went out and fled from the tomb, the women, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They were afraid. They didn't know what to make of it. They've never experienced or even heard anything like this before. But these women were trustworthy witnesses that Mark included in his gospel. There was authentic circumstantial evidence, plenty of it, and Mark doesn't even include all of it. The other gospels include more of it. See, to revisit the account of the empty tomb reveals that the resurrection is not just an idea of the mind, 
It is not a figment of someone's imagination, but in an event in history that actually took place and is true in every aspect. Some years ago, a man was preaching the gospel, and one of his hearers, an atheist, passed up a note to him while he was speaking with the question, what has your religion got that all these other religions have not got? And of course, there was a long list, Buddhism, Mohammedism, Confucianism, uh, Hinduism, you know, the whole, all the isms. And the young man paused for a moment who was speaking and then wrote an answer on a piece of paper and sent it back up to the man, and he said, an empty tomb. Nobody has an empty tomb. So fear, astonishment, is either going to lead to unbelief or it's going to lead to belief or somewhere in between. But belief and unbelief are the goals of the gospel. Do you believe it or don't you believe it? Is this true? Did this really happen? Is Jesus real or don't you believe it? You can't be neutral. And I'm under no illusion to think everyone will come and believe in this truth. It is a doctrine specifically taught in Scripture. It is a special message given by those who are God's children. It was the Apostle Paul who asked the question in the book of Acts, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Why would you think that is amazing? He's God. He can do anything. Why would you think he could not raise the dead? See, Jesus' resurrection hits a new note of hope and faith that what God did once in a graveyard in Jerusalem, he can and will repeat on a grand scale, and he's going to do that. That resurrection is going to happen on a grand scale. Against all odds, the irreversible death will be reversed. See, the resurrection chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that there is a link between the first Adam and, of course, the last Adam. The old Adam brought death into the world. The new Adam brought life into the world. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 to 26, this is what it says. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 
See, his victory over death is our benefit. Christ is the first fruits of the harvest, and those who believe in Christ will share in Christ's victory over death by our resurrection. See, the resurrection from the dead is indeed a thing which may very well seem to be incredible to any sort of thinking person. It is. For no other reason than no one experiences any living person or of seeing any such a thing happen in their lifetime. We know that there are resuscitations for those who have been declared clinically dead for a few moments, but for a person who has been in the grave for days, for weeks, for months, for years, for, or centuries, to burst the bands of death, to disturb the soil, to rise up again from the coffin, that is something no present human being can attest to. The only place that I see it is in Scripture. I see that my Lord has done that. And I see that if I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God had raised him from the dead, I will be saved. Right? So I must believe the doctrine of resurrection. The way the Scripture actually communicates it. See, the whole structure of the Christian doctrine stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, if Jesus just died and didn't rise again, there would be nothing. If the resurrection could be disproved, Christianity would crumble in the dust and be regular relegated to the junk pile of the wildest of myths. See, the resurrection, though, is the best established fact of antiquity. Most people who do not believe in the resurrection of Christ really have no support for their opinion because they have never examined the evidence Well, the Bible says, listen, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, to these he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So this morning as I preach to you, I am preaching to you that Jesus Christ indeed did rise from the grave. And my faith is not based on a blind leap in the dark. My faith is actually based on evidence. The Bible never calls us to a blind faith. It calls us to a faith in evidence. Blind faith is without evidence. The Bible calls us to believe in many infallible proofs, many convincing proofs, and they are convincing. And even the people if you've ever read about resurrection, that have gone out of their way to disprove the resurrection, if they were honest in their starting point, they have to be honest in their conclusion, they end up believing the resurrection because the evidence is too overwhelming. It's too overwhelming. The witnesses are too reliable. So this is the glorious truth. 
But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. That means those who believe in Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, Christians, that may I mean, their preaching is not in vain. Their faith is not in vain. Christians are not liars. Christians do not die in their sin. Christians who have died do not merely perish. Christians now living are not of all people most miserable. They are people who are the most thankful and prayerful and joyful because they have put their trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the short ending of Mark. Next week, next time, I will look at the longer ending of Mark. But I do want to admonish you that if you have not come yet to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior and tell him so, today would be a good day to do that. Today would be a good day to come and Ask Christ to save you. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one who can give you not only eternal life now, but life forever. Resurrection life. Life that can't even really be described beyond this life. So he's coming back to get us. And while we wait for him, we need to be living for him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul and strength, because all I have said in Scripture will come to pass. So where do you stand in relationship to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you believed it? Are you committed to it? Are you living it? Are you telling other people about it? Has it consumed you? Are you being transformed by it every day of your life? That's where the Scripture leads us to. That's what a real believer is. A real believer is being transformed. They're being changed by the Lord himself. They're being sanctified by the Spirit of God. They're being conformed into the image of God himself. That's what the Spirit of God's doing in your life. So I pray that that's a reality to you. It's not something that you don't know anything about, but it's something that's a reality. It's happening. And you're living it. And uh, you're glad to be a Christian. You are happy that God in his providence looked at you and gave you the gospel and opened your ears and eye, ears to hear and eyes to see, and now you're walking with him. And now what are we anticipating? We come to the Lord's table this morning, which we're going to have right now, and what are we looking at? We're looking at the elements of the Lord's table, right? The elements being the bread, and that's the Enfleshment, incarnation of Jesus coming into the world to do what? To be the perfect man who dies in the place of sinners, right? But then it's also the element in, of the wine that represents the blood of Christ because it, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiving, forgiveness of sins. There's no washing away of sin forever. Christ does that. But then we also know the Lord's table gives us a hope to look for his coming, to know that he's 
defeated Satan in death, and he's coming again. So we come to celebrate that. So as I mentioned before, there's two agreed-upon qualifications for participating in the Lord's Supper. The first one is those who have repented and believed in Christ can, and of course have been baptized, should participate because it is a sign of being a Christian. It's a sign of continuing in your Christian life. It's a sign that you're coming with a knowledge and understanding of what you're doing. Also, a second qualification would be, the, the of course, the participation of self-examination, that those who eat and drink are to discern the body. The problem at the Corinthian church was a failure to see their selfishness, a failure to see their inconsiderate conduct, especially towards one another. Instead of unity, they had disunity. Instead of being esteeming others higher than themselves, they were esteeming themselves. So in other words, let a person come and examine themselves, and they ought to ask the question whether their relationships in the body of Christ are in fact reflecting the character of the Lord himself in whom we meet when we come to the table. So those are the things that we need to look at in our own lives this morning. So let's prepare ourselves, make ourselves ready to come. The men who are serving, please come forward, and we'll partake of the Lord's table today. Thank you.